I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 20th, 2018. With Thanksgiving later this week, we offer two food-related science topics. Could it help your health to eat crickets? The crickets are a little bit gritty and a little bit earthy, at least the cricket powder. And can baking soda help reduce autoimmune disease? We looked at this primarily, as I said, as a basic science study. It was in healthy animals and healthy human subjects. The next step is to go and see, does it provide any benefit in an inflammatory model? If you're making pumpkin bread for Thanksgiving, a tiny bit of baking soda helps the batter rise by producing carbon dioxide bubbles. Baking soda is also popular as a folk remedy for reducing the symptoms of autoimmune conditions such as gout and rheumatoid arthritis. A common explanation for why baking soda might work is that it might rebalance an acidic body chemistry to a more alkaline and more soothing state. Baking soda's benefit might also involve switching the immune system from attack to relax. That's the conclusion of Dr. Paul O'Connor. O'Connor is a renal physiologist at the Medical College of Georgia, meaning he studies kidney function. O'Connor has conducted research in rats and in healthy people. It demonstrates that drinking a small amount of baking soda in water for two weeks changes white blood cells known as macrophages. Macrophages are found in abundance in a little fist-sized lymph system organ known as the spleen. After having research subjects drink that small amount of baking soda in water for just two weeks, O'Connor reports that their macrophages shifted away from attack mode and more toward relax mode. There's more research to be done, but O'Connor says someday these findings might mean that baking soda becomes a safe part of calming down an autoimmune disease attack. Here's Paul O'Connor explaining that the reason he looked into this research is because baking soda is already known as a therapy for reducing autoimmune attacks on the kidneys. The kidney is responsible for balancing intake of electrolytes, so sodium, chloride, bicarbonate, and all the things that we take in as a dietary electrolyte load with output through the urine. So what happens if people who have chronic kidney disease, you damage those glomeruli and you lose kidney function and kidney mass. Okay, so when you say glomeruli, those are the little kind of filtery little capillaries sponges. That, that filters, yeah. yes. We all get born with a certain number of filters. Let's say we have a million of them. We all lose them over a lifetime, but some people lose them much faster than others for reasons we don't quite understand, often related to high blood pressure or diabetes. And if you lose them too quickly, you end up with something called chronic kidney disease. Your kidney can't filter enough. One of the things that it can't do is then balance that electrolyte load so you become too acidic because the kidney can't excrete enough acid in the urine. It gets so that it can't excrete the acid out. It's just too worn out to do that. Can't excrete enough acid. So one of the early things that happens in chronic kidney disease is people end up developing what we call a metabolic acidosis. And it's basically an acidosis because your kidney can't excrete enough acid. Meaning that there's too um, much acid in your blood. Yes. Clinically, what people started doing is giving people sodium bicarbonate. The bicarbonate essentially eats up the acid in the blood. We started giving these patients sodium bicarbonate back not to treat the kidney disease, but to treat the fatigue and bone waste. And there's a whole host of things that happen when you become um, acidotic. Okay, so when you say acidotic, you mean when there's too much acid in your blood, there's things like bone wasting that happens? Fatigue and bone wasting, muscle wasting are the big ones. Okay. Those things also happen with chronic kidney disease, but they're not 
specifically related to the metabolic acidosis. And so you've been curious about what is it about baking soda that actually starts to improve things? And one theory has been that it's simply because it reduces the acid balance in the body to a more normal level. But you're thinking that it may do more with that little organ that's a whole bunch of blood cells, including white blood cells, called the spleen. Yes. So so what they found in some small clinical trials was not only did the bicarbonate protect from these deleterious sequelae of the acidosis, they slowed the rate in which your kidney function declines, which is really important to do in people with chronic kidney disease because we want to keep them off dialysis. How much baking soda was doing this? Was it like a tablespoon in water or was it like a muffin where the muffin was cooked with baking soda? So baking soda, that's why the muffin rises because when the acid gets there, it becomes CO2 and water and CO2 is a gas and that's what makes your cakes rise. That's why we use baking soda. But it doesn't work in the muffin. But it's no longer longer active as a buffer once that reaction's occurred. Okay, so skip the muffin. You can't say I'm eating this muffin to get more baking soda. You can't take an alkali in through a muffin because it's already been used up in the cooking process. So you need to put it in water. We're certainly not suggesting people go and and, and try this for themselves. This is a basic science study. We think there's some really interesting mechanisms here, but we're not advocating for people to self-medicate and start taking baking soda for their autoimmune disease at this stage. At this stage, although you see some potential here. We certainly think there's potential, but until we go through the process, I mean, baking soda, as innocuous as it may sound, because you can ingest it in cakes and things, can cause disturbances in some people. The high blood pressure is one big deal. You're taking a lot of sodium. If you're taking sodium bicarbonate, there's the opposite problem in people that aren't acidic to start with. They may develop an alkalosis and hyperkalemia. All of our electrolytes interact. pH is a really important one. If you have an acidosis or an alkalosis, either of those can upset the balance in other pathways as well. And all of these need to be maintained within really strict limits in healthy people. The take-home point should be baking soda is not innocuous. Sodium bicarbonate can cause health problems if you take too much of it. And in some people, taking even a little bit might be too much. So we're certainly not um, suggesting people go out and try this for themselves. Thank you for clarifying that. Now, when we go into mechanisms of why the baking soda and a water, a liquid solution might be making some difference. Could it be that it's simply making the stomach acids be more strong so that digestion is better? It's potentially the opposite of that. It's been known for about 20 years now that stimulating something called the vagus nerve activates something they call the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. And this is a big nerve. It's the rest and digest nerve in our body. And if you electrically stimulate it, it's been shown that you get this anti-inflammatory effect that originates from the spleen from this stimuli. One of the other things that stimulating the vagus nerve does is stimulate acid secretion in the stomach. We think that we may have stumbled on another way to activate this same mechanism and that's by ingesting sodium bicarbonate which initially gets rid of all the acid in your stomach and makes your stomach secrete more acid. We're stimulating this same physiological pathway although we're still trying to confirm that these are the same pathway. Okay, I'm trying to picture this if I'm your stomach and I get this baking soda in, it kind of dumps the normal acid that's in there. Well, it soaks up all the acid that's normally in there. And then the stomach goes, oh my gosh, I've got to make new I acid. I need more acid. I need to get back to my normal state of having an acidic 
pool in my stomach so I can digest things, start secreting acid. I think that you were saying with the vagus nerve, the acetylcholine goes up. We're not sure of the signaling pathways, but we think that's the common denominator potentially between these two stimuli that have been shown to activate an anti-inflammatory response in the spleen. We're still looking in to what are the mechanisms. It's quite controversial what mechanisms actually transmit this signal to the spleen. Some of our data suggests a specific type of cell called a mesothelial cell. Other people think it comes through a neural reflex. You mentioned the mesothelial cells. That's like that organ that looks a little bit like a sea fan that goes and cups and protects most of our body organs. Leonardo da Vinci made a beautiful picture of that where it was something that cupped and protected all of the organs from bumping into or scraping each other. It's basically like an internal lining on our organs that helps them slip against each other. People haven't paid too much attention to mesothelial cells in the past because it's really been seen as just a surface. They're mostly studied for mesothelioma, cancer that comes from asbestos exposure, but there's not really a lot of other work that's been done on them. Our studies indicated that they may be involved in this response. What's your next step? What's the next research you want to do? What we need to do now is determine whether or not activation of this pathway by ingestion of sodium bicarbonate can act to help prevent inflammation in some inflammatory disease state. We looked at this primarily, as I said, as a basic science study. It was in healthy animals and healthy human subjects. The next step is to go and say, does it provide any benefit in an inflammatory model? You know that there's people already out there because of the news reports about this who are probably taking at least a teaspoon or maybe a tablespoon of baking soda to deal with rheumatoid arthritis or gout or lupus and hoping that this is going to help them. You don't recommend that at this point. No, certainly not. People shouldn't be self-medicating based on a single news report. Yes, we think there's promise here, and we are hoping this does lead to a potentially a new therapeutic approach. But dangers to all these things that we don't foresee, we have to do the appropriate clinical trials before anyone should be going and doing this. And they should certainly be talking to their physician before they would try it for themselves. Well, I could ask you all kinds of other things, but I promise to keep this short. Good luck with the baking soda. Thank you very much. Paul O'Connor is a renal physiologist at the Medical College of Georgia meaning he studies kidney function. His research about why baking soda might help with autoimmune conditions was published earlier this year in the Journal of Renal Physiology. Up next, Thanksgiving is just a few days away. Perhaps you're baking some muffins for the banquet table. The Muffin Man is seated at the table in the laboratory of the Utility Muffin Research Kitchen. Reaching for an oversized chrome spoon, he gathers an intimate quantity of dried muffin remnants. To add an ingredient to those muffins that just might improve the health of your gut, have you thought about mixing in a little cricket powder? You heard that right. The powder comes from crickets. Stay tuned. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. People in the U.S. don't like to eat insects on purpose, but insects are actually a big source of protein for millions, perhaps billions, of people around the world. And they might be an especially healthy protein source. New research from Colorado State University reveals that adding just a few teaspoons of cricket powder to a milkshake or to a Thanksgiving muffin may reduce an inflammatory marker in the blood 
and increased levels of an intestinal microbe that's known for reducing the chance of a leaky gut. The leader of this cricket powder study is Tiffany Weir. She's an associate professor in the CSU Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition. Here's Tiffany Weir. I have a very good friend and colleague at the University of Wisconsin, Valerie Stahl, and she has been studying insect consumption or entomophagy for several years now as a sustainable food source. The project was really driven by her. She contacted me knowing that I look at the gut microbiota and asked if I would be interested in helping her look at effects beyond nutrition of crickets uh, by doing a study to look at the gut microbiota and whether it's changed with cricket consumption. All right. Now, Tiffany, we will be talking soon about how you persuaded two dozen college students there at CSU to eat food made with crickets. But before we do, let's talk a little bit about why she was curious about how this might affect the gut microbiome. I think she wanted to see if it would be beneficial because she works in a lot of populations in uh, different countries in Africa where they regularly consume insects, but they consume what's available seasonally and wild. Um, And she's interested in implementing insect farming practices there. They also have sanitation issues and lots of incidences of childhood malnutrition and environmental enteropathy, which is you know, basically diarrheal diseases, what we wanted to see if cricket might have an impact not just on the nutrition in these populations, but maybe also improve gut health. A lot of people do eat crickets and other insects worldwide. They seem to be healthy. Yeah, they do. There are, um, boy, I think about 53 countries and several million people around the world that regularly consume insects as part of their typical diet. Have you eaten insects yourself? I have. Of course, I had to try all the foods that we used in the study. And how did they taste? The crickets are a little bit gritty and a little bit earthy, at least the cricket powder that we used for the study, but really, um, they're not bad. I think it was a lot easier for me to consume them as part of a processed food than it would be just to pick up a cricket and pop it in my mouth, but I'm working on that. You know, I've eaten crickets one time in Mexico, and there they just covered them with soy sauce, so you couldn't really tell it was a cricket. Yeah, chapulines, right? It's the the cricket tacos? Yeah, something like that. And so I, I guess I can't really say I've actually eaten a bug on purpose in a way that I knew it was a bug, really. So I, th- I think that we, we've got a real phobia against this as Americans. Before we get into this more, can a vegan eat a cricket? and feel good about it? It depends on the reason why you are not eating meat. And if it's for sustainability reasons or social reasons, a lot of times uh, crickets and eating insects would be acceptable. Rocky Mountain Micro Ranch, they're a cricket and mealworm farm here in Colorado. Wendy Lou McGill is the, um, you know, is the main farmer. (laughs) Rocky Mountain Micro Ranch. That's right. You don't need a lot of acreage to raise crickets. Tell us what you did to persuade students to eat cricket flour. We're a food science department, and so I had access to food science students that are interested in product development. One of my students, Melinda Gindin, helped by creating different recipes, muffins and cookies, bars, and basically just walked around our department with trays and little plates with different cricket foods on them and said, here, try this, try this, until 
she was able to find something that most people thought was pretty palatable. Before you recruited your volunteers, you did some taste testing of recipes. We did. Were you looking for something where people could not tell when it had crickets in it and when it did not have crickets in it? Yes. It was a crossover blinded trial, which means that people ate meals with crickets that we provided for two weeks, and then they kind of had a rest period for two weeks, and then there were two weeks where they were eating control meals, which were, you know, still a muffin and a milkshake that we gave them, but that didn't have cricket. And so coming up with things that looked the same and basically tasted the same was a real challenge. Okay, so it was muffins and milkshakes. Yes. Were these healthy or were they just kind of regular muffins and milkshakes in a way? They were pretty much just regular. It was a malted milkshake. We actually just created like the powder, the malted milkshake powder and added cricket into it and then had people mix it into their favorite milk, whether that was dairy milk or almond milk or whatever, and consume it that way. And then the muffins were um, chocolate chip pumpkin spice. Well, they do sound delicious. And people ate them. And how many people were involved in the study who were trying the crickets? We had 20 participants that ate crickets for two weeks every day for breakfast. It was 25 grams of crickets. That's about five teaspoons of crickets. Yes. You were looking at it as a potential probiotic to see what it would do to stool samples in terms of the microbes in stool samples that you analyze later. That's correct, yes. And you also did a blood marker. We actually looked at several blood markers. Um, TNF-alpha is one measure of uh, inflammation that is circulating in the blood, and that was the only one that we saw uh, a decrease in with cricket, which actually was surprising to us because the population that we were working with were you know, young, mostly college-age individuals, who were generally healthy. And so getting reduction in circulating or systemic markers of inflammation, we felt was really kind of surprising. Tiffany Weir, how much protein is in 25 grams of crickets and what other nutrients are in that five teaspoons of cricket powder? So the meals that we created, so not all of the protein was necessarily coming from the crickets, but the meals that we created had 21, about 22 grams of protein um, from the cricket compared to the controls, which were 10 grams only. And so it suggests that we gave them about 10 grams of proteins um, from the shake and the muffin that we provided. Okay, so just five teaspoons of cricket powder gives about 10 grams of protein. It's fairly low fat, no carbohydrates, but a lot of fiber. Well, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily a good source of fiber compared to things like fruits and vegetables or beans, but a lot of our typical protein sources coming from pigs or cows or chickens or even eggs don't have any fiber at all. And so the fact that there's fiber in this good or good source of protein um, and that it's a unique fiber that we don't typically encounter in our diet made us think that it might have some impacts on the gut microbiota. So you looked at the microbiome of people when they were eating the cricket powder and when they were not. Were there any significant differences there? Yes. Yeah, so we did see an increase in bacteria called Bifidobacterium animalis, which is a common probiotic organism, and we saw decreases in lactobacillus, which are also common probiotic organisms. 
Okay, so for some reason, eating crickets seem to increase the amount of bifidobacterium. Yes. That might be a good thing. Generally, it's considered a good thing. Bifidobacterium are important for maintaining gut barrier function. They're important for defense against pathogenic organisms. They're one of the very earliest organisms that colonizes the infant gut microbiota, and they're thought to be involved in the development of the immune system. Okay, those all sound like pretty good things. Cricket powder may make a difference. Now, why? Why might it make a difference? Is it because of the exoskeleton of crickets, which is chitin? We can't really say whether it was the chitin or whether uh, it was some other component because we did use whole roasted ground crickets. But bifidobacterium um, have some unique metabolic pathways that allow them to access these chitin chains and use them as a fuel source. And that's why the bifidobacterium um, increased when we fed people the crickets. And so this is something that um, our lab is moving forward with and looking at to see specifically whether bifidobacterium can use chitin as a sole energy source and whether it has to be chitin from crickets. We now have a bag full of mealworm casings back in our laboratory. So we're going to be looking at mealworm because it's also got quite a bit of chitin in its exoskeleton. And then, you know, Tiffany, I'm kind of okay about eating crickets maybe, but I'm not so sure about eating chitin from mealworms. That just doesn't sound <laughs> quite as appetizing. But it would be the same kind of chitin, whether it's in mealworms or crickets, or you said mushrooms have this too. Yep, as well as shellfish. I was wondering, so if we were to eat shellfish with the shells on them, if I served that to people, then that would serve as a way to give them more chitin. Yes. Now, the structure, the exact molecular structure of chitin is variable. That's why we want to look at chitin from different sources and see if the bifidobacterium can utilize chitin kind of uniformly across different chitin origins. The chitin might be accessible to the bifidobacterium, and so they could use it as a source of energy. What about the possibility that crickets, because they've evolved to eat a lot of different foods, may have some microbes inside of them, or they may have some chemical structure inside of their bodies, that when we eat it, we get the benefit of that, and that goes back to perhaps improving our gut health. That's another possibility. That's why we want to do follow-up studies and look to see whether the bifidobacterium growth is enhanced by just the chitin alone or do we need the whole cricket powder. The processing, the roasting, and then the grinding, I don't know how much of the native microbial community of crickets would survive that process, but is the whole cricket. And so the microbiota that were associated with those crickets could potentially be passed on to the flower source or the, or the cricket powder. Well, there's a lot of research up ahead, a lot more taste tests that are going to be done in your lab involving foods with chitin in them, it sounds like. Potentially, yeah. There, we definitely want to do some more studies. Uh, we would really like to look and see whether the effects that we saw were um, repeatable in a larger population, perhaps a population that has gastrointestinal distress. And we want to look more at the mechanisms and see if we grow intestinal cells in a Petri dish type system what is the effect of chitin or what are the effects of fecal waters from people who've been consuming cricket on the inflammatory 
molecules that are released from these cells on the function of the barrier because you can use cells to create, you know, sort of test tube gut barriers and determine what the barrier function is and how the different um, components of the cricket can influence that gut barrier function. Small peptides that aren't well digested is one thing that can get through a leaky gut, but if we think of the intestines as a fairly closed system, there are plenty of things in our environment that we ingest or plenty of things that live there already, like the bacteria, that we want to stay in the intestines and not get into circulation. And so a lot of the inflammatory processes that we look at are actually driven by molecules that are created by or present on bacterial surfaces. Okay, so you look at molecules that are either bacteria or other microbes or funguses, etc., that are best off staying inside the intestine and not leaking out into the bloodstream. And if they do, that can cause a lot of problems for people. Yeah, one that we're particularly interested in is lipopolysaccharide, which is a component of the cell wall of gram-negative bacteria. It's referred to as endotoxin often. And high levels of endotoxin in the blood uh, will cause fevers and extreme sickness. It sounds like you're going to need to look at some sick people at some point. <laughs> we would like to do, um, yeah, a population that either has some sort of gastrointestinal distress or take it to the populations that are vulnerable where Valerie does a lot of her work. Well, good luck. There's a lot of research up ahead. It's a fun topic, and yet there's some very serious things about both providing protein to people and seeing whether this actually might be a better source of protein. You know, for the human population, definitely some benefits, but also for the earth in terms of the ability to produce food for humans on a smaller scale with much fewer environmental inputs. Well, thank you. I think my final question has to do with Thanksgiving coming up. Has anyone in your lab tried to shape cricket powder into a turkey? <laughs> no, no, nobody's gone that far yet. Are you going to try muffins at your table with cricket powder? <laughs> you know, you could probably add it into stuffing pretty easily, you know, without anybody even knowing that they were in there. Well, thank you. I'm going to imagine your Thanksgiving table with a little stuffing with a little bit of extra chitin in it, and we know where it comes from then. <laughs> Don't tell my kids. We've been talking with Colorado State University food scientist and microbiome expert Tiffany Weir about her research regarding what happened with the gut microbiome in CSU students who volunteered to try milkshakes and muffins that contained cricket flour. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by me. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Raymond Scott and Frank Zappa and Scott Hensel. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender, 